Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you shower on us. We pray for our lecturers this year, and especially today we pray for Bishop Andrew as he comes to talk about Africa to us. We pray for him this evening, but we also pray for him in the arduous task of being our area bishop. And so we commend this evening to you, and we pray for one another, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's um, very nice to be here with you this evening. Thank you so much, John, for your welcome, and I'm looking forward to uh, perhaps greeting you towards the end of the evening together. Um, it's always a great pleasure to talk about um, Ethiopia, and what I'm going to try and do this evening is to share with you some of the lessons that I think we might learn from the church in that part of Africa, and it's only one tiny part of Africa. And I've got lots of slides to show you. I've got um, some slides that have got some theological reflection on them, um, some slides with some um, missiology, um, and some lessons learned summarised at the end, but lots and lots of photographs. And I can take you around each one. I'll be talking, I guess, for about 45, maybe 50 minutes. And then, uh, you know, uh, the floor's open to you to questions and things. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Yes? yes. 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 Okay, jolly good, fantastic, thank you. Then I shall begin. But uh, before I begin, I should just say that uh, before I came here to take up this new role, the priests and the people of the Gambella region of Ethiopia, which is right on the border with South Sudan, were delighted and thrilled and tickled pink that I was about to become the Bishop of Reading. <laughs> Can you see the slide clearly? That's great. Many people, when they think of Ethiopia, think of desert. And of course, there is desert in Ethiopia, but it's a very, very beautiful country and a very diverse country topographically. Um, the slide in the centre there is the typical image that people have of Ethiopia. It's the slide, you can see it, of the Danakil Desert, which goes down to the Danakil Depression, the lowest point in Africa itself, where it's extremely hot. But around the rest of the pictures, you've got, um, at the top left here, you've got a, a slide taken at the edge of the, of the highland plateau, looking down into the Danakil Desert, above the clouds. And then you've got... Um, um, sort of rivers flowing off the highlands into the border with South Sudan. You've got Rift Valley lakes and typical African savanna. Ethiopia is a mountain kingdom, basically. It was only ever occupied twice by the Italians, fairly briefly, never colonised, and largely because it is a mountain kingdom surrounded by desert. So um, the churches there and the culture are very ancient, and have changed very little through any contact with the outside world. But it's a beautiful, beautiful land. If you get a chance to go, I do encourage you to go. Oh no, I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> Ethiopia is very much um, where the Middle East meets Africa. And there are actually 80 tribal groups in Ethiopia, each with their own language. The national language is Amharic, which is a Semitic language, so it's a little bit like Arabic, a little bit like Hebrew, and um, Aramaic and Syriac. But you also have two other major African language groups. You've got the Cushitic languages, like Somali, and the Nilotic languages, the, the black African languages. 
And if you look just around those lovely faces in this slide, you can just see something of the diversity of the people who live there. So the lady in the top left comes from Konso, deep down in the south of Ethiopia, not far from the Kenyan border. And you've got a lady in the centre there at the top, a lovely face, uh, an Ethiopian Highlander who would speak Amharic as her first language. Well, she's, uh, we actually stopped to take that photograph halfway up the mountain um, outside Addis Ababa, where she and many women like her would have um, cut fire, um, firewood, eucalyptus wood, a load of something like this wide, carrying on her back to carry it 20 miles over the mountains down into the city of Addis Ababa to sell for 10 pence to buy enough lentils to take back to feed her children for one day. And she's still smiling. And I tried to pick up one of those loads once, it was absolutely impossible. Um, then there's a lady to, um, top right from the Gambella region of Ethiopia, right on the Sudanese border, an Anuak lady, and a lovely photograph of this girl with her little roly-poly brother or sister, which kind of breaks all the um, iconic sort of images of, of Ethiopia, of course, doesn't it? Um, they were refugees from South Sudan, now long gone back. Um, an Afar girl from the Islamical Depression, and uh, a Muslim man from uh, the north and uh, west, and His Holiness Abuna Palos, the head of the um, Ethiopian Orthodox Kewahedo Church. And I'll say more about him in a moment. Just give you a sense of how you can see, I think, just visually there, how it is where um, Africa meets the Middle East, and culturally too. Ethiopia is a nation of faith, really, uh, with a rich Christian history. Many people imagine that Ethiopia is predominantly Muslim. It's not. Um, according to the census figures of two years ago, 45% um, of the population are Ethiopian Orthodox Christian, 35% are Muslim, and the rest are either um, Protestant Christians or there's a very small um, number of animists still on the borders with, with Kenya, right down in the south and the west. And animists, as you may know, um, believe that God is in and, 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 uh, and the rocks and the rivers and the trees and the sky and the, and the earth and so on. But the Orthodox Church is incredibly important to Ethiopian identity, cultural identity. Um, I'll take you through some slides to, to explain that. But I want to start out by thinking a little about their theological method. Eastern and Oriental Orthodox Christians approach their Christian faith from a very different starting point to the one that we use. And um, like many of the Oriental Orthodox churches, they look to this man, Ephraim the Syrian, who was a bishop in the fourth century of Nisibis, which is um, a modern day Urfa in Turkey. And he was actually the disciple of another bishop. And Ephraim's writings have had a deep impact on. Oriental Orthodox spirituality and theology, and these are the kind of the the, the main the main points that they would make if, if you were with them this evening. They would start by saying the first principle is that what is made cannot reach its maker. Pretty obvious, but that God has actually lowered Himself to the level of our human understanding because we cannot possibly grasp him um, in his fullness and in all his glory. And they talk about a double incarnation. So just as G God chose to become human in Christ, 
so also the divine word, that's Christ himself, clothed himself in human language, which is the language of theology, which is never adequate enough, as I said, to capture his essence. And so God, through this double incarnation, meets us on our terms. And the fact, they say, that the Lord put on a body shows there's nothing unclean or unworthy about our bodies. We in Western culture tend to sort of split body and soul a bit. We tend to mistreat the body, and we don't do very much better with the soul either. But they actually say that um, the, there's nothing shameful about the body at all. It's to be honoured and respected and, and, and cared for. And they talk about three mysteries. I love these mysteries. I can, these appear often in my Christmas sermons. Um, but the great one, God himself, the great one who became small, the rich one who became poor, and the hidden one who revealed himself. And just to go a little bit further, just to give you a, a more of a sense of how different they are in the way in which they do their theology. They start off, if they were in dialogue, they start off by looking at us and admire the fact that we come from a post-industrial society been through an industrial revolution, enlightenment, um, a reformation, all those sorts of things. They can see the point of much of that. But they say, in scientific inquiry, the mind seeks to dominate the subject and to subjugate something. They say, that's fine, but theological inquiry, and for the orthodox, it's really important to understand that when you talk about theology, you don't just talk about the head. You talk about the heart as well. Theological inquiry is interactive. It's what happens between you and God. Through it, they say, you and I can actually share in the mystery of God himself, in love and wonder. And they say, well, they do say this, they say, you Christians in the West, you tend to go wrong quite often because you're starting with the wrong basis of your faith, and that's led you into error. Now, now, I'm not going to ask you to make any judgments about that, I'm not making judgments about that either. I'm just telling you how they see it. And they say it's really important to remember our creatureliness, that we can never completely understand God, let alone the universe. Scripture, they say, must be read with the inner eye of faith. A person whose inner eye of real faith is darkened through sin or whatever, will not really understand the scripture, they say. But if your inner eye is lucid and it's clear, they talk about the soul being like a mirror, that in the days of Ephraim, of course, made out of metal, and you actually had to polish and burnish until it were, for it to reflect your face. It takes effort, in other words, to, to keep the soul in a, in a position and a condition wherein it can reflect the divine glory. If your inner eye is clear, then you'll see a great deal when you come to the scriptures and the creation, because they see the, 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 the creation is the primary, God's primary revelation. <coughs> and they say faith is the eye that can see hidden things. But the whole thing starts with wonder and love and praise. It's something like, is it um, Julian of Norwich or, or Mother Teresa who talked about, not Mother Teresa, um, Teresa of Avila, who talked about the. the um, your prayers being like darts of longing love. If you sit in prayer and just gaze adoringly and lovingly on the face of God, you actually release um, huge fountains of love. It's the same idea that they've got. 
that prayer is about love and, and through that love actually releasing something of God, something from God's treasure house. Theology lesson number one out of the way, we can get on with the uh, interesting stuff, photographs. <laughs> Art and iconography is really important to the Orthodox. And this is, this is important, I should just say to you now, that I'm laying down these principles so you can begin to understand some of the things that can be said to you a little bit later about um, lessons we might learn from um, Ethiopian Christianity. Art and iconography are really important. Um, one of the lovely things about it, I'll just say as you're looking at these pictures now, is that if you see a face full on, full profile, uh, not profile, sorry, full, full on, with two eyes showing, that's a good person. If you see something depicted just in profile, with only one eye showing, it means that they're actually an evil person. So if we go around the pictures, we can see from the wall paintings in one of the churches up in Lalibela, which is a rock-hewn church, as I'll show you some slides of those in a moment, that's the first Emperor Menelik. The great founding story of Ethiopia is going back 3,000 years to the Queen of Sheba, who they believe is Ethiopian, who made the long journey to Jerusalem, had a relationship with King Solomon, and the issue of that relationship was the first Emperor Menelik, the first um, <coughs> Emperor of the Zagwe dynasty. And there he is, depicted on, that, on the walls of that church. But going around clockwise, there clearly is the deposition of Christ from the cross in Good Friday, being taken down from the cross. But just look at the clothes. Um, they could almost be either Turkish or maybe even European, European medieval clothes that they're wearing. But then there's, the, then there's a, um, the first of two icons of St. George, who is the patron saint of Ethiopia. And they believe that George lost his head seven times. Um, on the seventh time, it killed him. But the previous six times, miraculously, it grew, grew, back, grew back again. But he, he rescued a maiden caught in a tree from the dragon, said the dragon, of course. And there's actually an Ethiopian Orthodox priest in the corner of the, the painting there. Bottom right, for those of you who do know something about church history and theology, um, that's, that's a, a, a painting in the oldest or, um, Orthodox church in Addis Ababa of the Council of Nicaea. And there you've got two, two heretics. You've got Nestorius and Arius. Uh, Nestorius with his tongue coming out and Arius squatting down with his guts spilling out underneath it. Pure propaganda, pure propaganda. And they take their religion very seriously. Then we've got St. George again. And then, I don't know if you can see, that's a biblical story, a gospel story. Can anybody see what they think it might be? It's been enculturated, but it's a gospel story. It's actually Salome, who's just finished dancing before Herod and asking for the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And here, they've all got their, just being shown in profile, and um, the emperor here, Herod, is actually eating injera and wat, which is what Ethiopians eat even today, and he's drinking tej, which is um, honey mead. <coughs> and, and just absolutely lovely. Monasteries and holy places are a really important feature, um, not just of Orthodox Christian life, but of, of national life, really. The monasteries are often in very remote places, and they are extraordinary places that um, gather people to them. Monks tend to wander all over the place, but these, some of these places are very extraordinary. 
Um, the, the most beautiful of these pictures here, I think, actually, is this one here, which is um, of the rock-hewn church, one of the 13 rock-hewn churches in La Libella. Nobody's quite sure why the um, Orthodox built churches down into the soft rock in the 11th century. When we were experimenting with building upwards, they were digging down. Um, of course, Islam had not come to um, Ethiopia at that time, so it may have just been marauding tribes from elsewhere um, in East Africa. But they did dig, dig down, and they're often very small and very dark buildings. Each is looked after by a priest who would tend to be the, the guardians of the national treasure. And there'll be all sorts of treasures that will actually show you, whether it's some you know, crowns you were talking about earlier, John, or manuscripts and parchments and icons and things that unscrupulous tourists actually you know, pay money for and then smuggle out of the country um, because it's illegal to take them out. Festivals are a huge, um, hugely important um, part of Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity. Um, these, these, this slide depicts two major festivals. The first in, in the year would be the New Year Festival, the, the finding of the True Cross which is on the 13th or 14th of September. Um, Ethiopia still follows the Julian calendar, which we did until the 16th century. So um, it's, it's, it's a year of 12 months of equal length and one 13th month of days, making up the 365 days at the end of the year, so a month of about eight days. And New Year's Day is, let's say, about the 13th or 14th of September. And the finding of the True Cross is celebrated a little while after that. And the, the story is that the Empress Helena, who found this part of the True Cross, found it by following the smoke from a fire. And so um, on, the, on this, this particular festival, they actually light a massive fire in the center of Addis Ababa, um, in the main square that was used by the communists for uh, military parades. And then they watch very carefully whether, whether the bonfire falls. If it falls to the north, um, there's going to be Warped. Falls to the west, there's going to be famine. Um, so they watch very carefully to see what's going to happen. So you can see it's sort of a, a strong folk religious element to this strong faith they have. But here are the priests who, the night before this festival, would have taken the, the tabots, which are little wooden tablets with the, the, the um, commandments written onto them that actually sit normally in the Holy of Holies in the center of the church. They put them on their heads, they processed with those tablets covered, and they all gathered together in another main square to stand all night until His Holiness, the Pope of the Orthodox Church, is ready to come and celebrate with them the baptism of Christ. And crowds come out, and at the highlight of the ceremony, the Pope gets a, a, a massive hose pipe and douses the crowd with water <laughs> to remind them of their baptismal vows. And then you've got um, sorry, I'm, I'm getting confused here. So, so that was the final of the true cross is this one here. These are the celebration of the baptism of Christ when they do douse people with his hose of water. Priesthood is really interesting for those of us who are, who are ordained. The traditional way of training priests was for um, young boys to be selected or offered by the families to, to go into a monastery or to go into a school and the first thing they have to do is to learn the scriptures by heart and they have 13 more books in their Bibles than we have in ours and then what they do is they have to learn the ancient Christian commentaries on those texts 
so that when they come to be able to preach, they're actually preaching from a solid base, um, a, a solid scriptural foundation. Um, what's actually happening now is that that is changing because the Medisabu, which is developing rapidly um, with an emerging educated middle class, the Orthodox Church is realizing that it's missing out and actually people are leaving the Orthodox Church and going to the Pentecostal and Protestant churches, um, which is fine, but the Orthodox are worried about that. They're also worried about the fact that they're losing lots of people to Islam in the south and the east of the country. And so what they've done is to change the way in which they're tra training their clergy, going from a much more Western model, a more academically based model with a degree program and so on and so forth. And in the heart of Addis now to, to get at this educated middle class. Um, in one particular church, St. Stephen's Church, they set up a midweek Bible study which meets at 6 o'clock just after work. And every Wednesday the priest there gets 700 people for a Bible study, just absolutely extraordinary. So again, they take the religion very seriously. The Achilles heel of all Orthodox churches is the relationship with the state. Um, it would be true of the church in Russia, Serbia, um, it's certainly true of the church in, in Ethiopia as well. So before the communist regime, which was toppled in 91, during the emperor's time, Haile Selassie's time, church and state were virtually one, virtually coterminous. The communist era tried to destroy that, um, but the present government who threw the communists out um, are, are actually very much a secular state, but they're much more open to the orthodox, so the relationship between the two has been getting, been getting stronger again. But the trouble with that is that whenever um, something happens politically that people don't like, the orthodox church end up supporting the government and creating real tensions and huge problems. And then the problems in the country tend to end up being reflected inside the church. So um, a few years ago, the, the, Pope, the Orthodox Pope here, Bruno Palos, his photographs at the top there, um, has a synod, a holy synod of 36 bishops, but only six bishops supported him. And two years ago, his closest um, friend and uh, the bishop had come up, Bishop of Ellis Haberber, stood up in a meeting and pointed at him, which you just don't do in that culture, and accused him of um, nepotism and corruption. And the whole thing kicked off into a nasty cycle of, of, of sort of um, accusations, counter-accusations, and so on and so forth. That's the Orthodox Church, and that's, it's essential to understand something of the Orthodox Church to understand something of Ethiopia. But my nine years of my, my life spent um, out in Ethiopia um, was spent firstly as priest at St. Matthew's in the heart of the city, which is an international church, an Anglican church, and then the last four and a half years as area bishop covering the Horn of Africa. And so I had the great privilege of meeting people I'd never otherwise have met on the Sudanese border and working with them as very much as a guest, very much as their brother, and as their bishop. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of that. And I want to talk to you a little bit about missional principles before I get into some photographs of some of that. Um, over that time, I've tried to kind of, I, I've read quite a bit about mission and, and tried to wrestle with what mission might be in a rapidly changing context and going into somebody who is very much white-skinned into a host community. And with all the baggage that we carry with us about colonialism and things, I think I've managed to reduce it to these basic essential points, that 
you had to travel light. You had to learn to travel light. Not to think as people tend to think when they go into the mission field, ah, I've come as God's gift to this church with a certain bundle of experiences and qualifications and skills that I can offer to them. Because very quickly you discover, A, that the context you're in is incredibly complex and it's going to take you a while to understand it. And B, because the people that you thought you'd come to minister to actually minister to you. And I have to say, they taught me a huge amount about what it means to be a Christian as well as about what it means to be a human being. And I, I, I thank God for them for having given me that. The second thing I think I've learned is that the missionary always arrives late. And that's a quotation by, uh, from Leonardo Boff, who was a Latin American liberation theologian. Um, you know, again, you don't take the gospel into a culture that's never heard before. The Holy Spirit of God was there long before you got there. And you've got to discern what God's doing to, to, to see where the keys are to open up that culture, to get people to a point where they're receptive to be able to receive the message you have to bring. Third lesson is that to be an effective uh, uh, leader, you have to be a disciple first. So, for those of us who are priests here, ordained ministers of the gospel, um, it's really important that we're taking that primary relationship that we have with God as the most important thing that we have to do before we begin to do you know, strategic uh, planning and, uh, and all the legal stuff that goes with being a bishop, certainly. That's really primary and really important. And out of that, I believe our primary task as church leaders is to disciple people for real life. Um, I'm going to talk to you a moment about some of the challenges we faced. We faced many challenges, and um, it was very, very clear, very quickly, that we had to show people how their Christian faith made real connections with where they live between Monday and Saturday, and, and could and should make a real difference to how they lived and related to each other and to different tribes. <coughs> I've come back seeing that it's a, it's a, we face a very similar um, problem in our culture and society today here. Um, a friend of mine who was running a very big um, evangelical charismatic church in Cambridge up until a few years ago, 800 people on Sunday, actually said that his biggest challenge was that between Monday and Saturday, most of his people lived functionally as if they were atheists. So saying on Sunday, saying amen to all the right things, but actually not knowing how to live it out between Monday and Saturday. That's but a painful insight, but I think a really interesting insight. And I'm as guilty of, of that if, if we are, any of us are at all, as, as anyone might be. The next point is that this is following Bill Hybels of Willow Creek. It's the local church that God's hope, that's God's hope for the world. When people are hurting, they don't come to the diocesan office or my office in Tidmarsh. They come here to the local church because this is where they can find love and support and comfort in their pain and their hurt and in their confusion as they, as they seek um, answers to life's questions. And the last one, quoting Debbie Bosch, um, South African missiologist, died tragically in a car crash about 20 years ago now. Um, he wrote the best book written ever on mission. Um, he said, mission is the total task that God set his church for the salvation of the world. Preaching the gospel, of course, but living it out. 
serving the poor, meeting people in their need, so people can actually see that it's made a difference to you, so that they can see why it should make a difference to them. So here we are, running on a bit, half an hour. <laughs> um, growing the church, well, here we are. One of the first things you might do at growing the church, of course, is Christian initiation. So we work very hard at, I work very hard at getting up there and actually baptizing people and confirming people latterly. Although, in fact, we gradually had clergy who were there to share that task with me, able to go out into the deep villages and things and do the baptizing. But it's a real privilege to baptize people in a river or to stand in the pouring rain outside and confirm people when the congregation, for some reason, actually huddled inside the church, keeping dry. I don't quite know how that one worked out, actually, but it, it did. Um, and this is, this is really after it's sent a, a confirmation just like that. Um, growing the church, preparing people for ordination was going to be hugely important. When we went out in 2002, very quickly I began to um, follow up for Bishop Munir, my, my diocesan bishop, on the, on the work on the Sudanese border, and found that there were four priests, all of whom had been ordained in South Sudan during the long civil war. Um, three of them had been ordained deacon and priest on the same day, um, one after one month of orientation. What tended to happen when we turned up was that people saw that as we come, resources sometimes followed, and what happened as a result of that was that it was often the big man in the clan who wanted to be ordained because he thought, I'm going to have access to resources. So what we did was we, we developed a proper selection process for ordination and then a proper training program for ordination too. And of course the highlight of that is actually having an ordination service. And we have many of those, often going on for about three or four hours in about 45 degrees heat, and sometimes at the hottest part of the year, 80% humidity as well, which is pretty unpleasant. Um, but you'll notice that these clergy here are dressed in a very kind of Western way. And you might think that's odd, but in fact, this is something we worked at, or tried to work at constantly. What would it look like to have a thoroughly enculturated indigenous um, Anglican church on the Sudanese border of Ethiopia? And we've, we talked about various sorts of garments they might wear for the services, but they said to us constantly, no, Bishop, we're a serious church. I said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, we're, we're, a, we're a serious church because you're taking our training seriously, you're taking our resourcing seriously, and we want, and we know that we're part of the Anglican Communion, we want to look as if we're part of this Anglican Communion, and so we have robes made in this and all sorts of things. So they wanted to look the part as they imagined it, which is why they they do. Another essential part of growing the church was theological training. TEE stands for Theological Education by Extension. And um, we looked all over the places for, for, for courses that we could actually use with people who are A, first generation Christians, B, most of whom um, have or cannot read or write, many of whom who can read, read or write cannot write very well or read English very well. You might think well, it's a strange thing to expect them to do so in English. But in Ethiopia, um, all children are taught and examined in English from grade 7 onwards. So if you want to do well and get to university, you've got to pass your exams every year in English to go all the way through. 
And that would be as strange as somebody coming to your child's school, your grandchildren's school, and saying, right, with effect from next year, all your lessons are in Mandarin Chinese. It's as, difficult, as different as that. So they have a massive adjustment to make. So they have English, but it's not great. So um, we looked at courses in Arabic, well, they don't speak Arabic. We looked at courses from Kenya, but the English actually was quite advanced in Kenya. The same from Uganda. Um, the Nigerian ones didn't quite seem to match. The ones from Australia were just culturally not appropriate. The ones from English, England just too academic. So we, uh, a friend of ours who'd been teaching lay readers in the Diocese of Bath and Wales came out and actually wrote a three-year course for us. Um, nine modules over three years. She'd come out um, three times a year, two weeks to to deliver the subject that she'd been working on and one extra week to teach pedagogical skills so they could go out and actually teach people in the villages where they were. 20 people graduated, 20 clergy, all the clergy were required to do it, but 234 lay people wanted to do it and actually managed to get some qualification at the end. It was evaluated externally by USPG and the University of Chester, and they were saying that those who got a distinction in their course had probably done enough to have matriculated to one of the modern British universities. I don't think that's bad. I think that's pretty good. Out of that, we, we started working on trying to find a, a, a simple liturgy that would actually unify us, and we, we managed that um, over the course of about two years. I'll speed up, John's looking at the clock. <laughs> um, we, we, these churches that we, we were working with, and, and, and it wasn't us doing the evangelizing and the missioning, it was uh, the people we were working amongst, um, were just spreading very, very quickly. One of the things we had to do, strangely, was to limit that growth. And I remember one very, very long, week-long meeting with the clergy and some key lay people talking about when, how and when we should recognize a local church. And they said, we should not recognize a local church until there are 50 people every Sunday for six months. And any church we build is not, is not closer than two hours' walk from the nearest church. That would sort some of us out. So we planted churches, but we clustered them into mission centers on the old medieval minister model of ministry. So that what you had was a priest and a TEE tutor and a mother's union representative and uh, probably a deacon as well going out from there to resource the baptized who are running the local churches. It wasn't enough clergy to go around, so it was the baptized who are running Sunday morning services and gathering people in. The mother's union are incredible. The Mother's Union in Africa are extraordinary. The average Anglican in the world today is black, 26, female, and African. That's the average Anglican. Look at us this evening. And just think about how many there must be in Africa. It's huge. And Mother's Union members are in their late teens, early 20s, dangling babies on their knees, and they're in the meetings, they're in their uniforms, they're doing the hospital visiting, the prison visiting, and teaching the values of family life. And they are absolutely key, and they are now beginning to roll out with the help of the Mother's Union in London, at last, after five years of asking, a literacy programme that's been proved to be really, really powerful in Kenya and other parts of Africa. 
So this is the kind of church growth we saw from eight congregations to 53, from five ordained clergy, including me, to 22, from eight church buildings to 53, and from no theological training to a TE certificate program with 20 graduates. We also sought to try to make a difference in the world. Um, when I was priest at St. Matthews in the, in the heart of Addis Ababa, I inherited a small refugee program, refugees from South Sudan coming up from the border, two days bus journey to get to Addis to receive remittances from overseas. By the time they actually got the money, which might take a month or more to come, they got into debt. When the money arrived, they go and you know, go hit the bars and, and get drunk, they get into fights and things, we're getting constantly bailing them out of the, out of the, out of the nick. And so they were constantly saying to us, Bishop, we're stuck. we want something to eat, we want, we want Bible studies. And we said, okay, we'll take you at your word, we'll teach you to do Bible studies, we'll teach you to cook. And very quickly, from 15 um, refugees, we had 250 men on a Wednesday, 200 women and children on a Tuesday. Fantastic. Monitoring for malnutrition, uh, vaccinating against measles, all sorts of stuff. But in the wet season, the first wet season of this program, Addis is 8,500 feet above sea level. It rains virtually constantly for three months. It's cold, it's miserable. You come from the Sudanese border, it's deathly. We were giving away blankets. And as people were carrying their blankets off the church compound, they were being stoned by rocks, by the local, with rocks by the locals. Because we hadn't realized that the locals were poorer than the refugees, because they did not have access to family overseas sending remittances. So we realized we had to do something. We had understood that you know, all the children in Ethiopia are taught and examined in English from grade seven onwards. Schools of 5,000, classes of 100, squeezed onto benches, chalk and talk, three copies of any one textbook available in the school library. So if you want it, you get there at seven in the morning. If you don't get it, you've lost it for the day. So we just built a Sunday school room. It was empty midweek, Monday to Saturday. So we put up some shelves, bought some books, and just stood back and saw what happened. And um, the, the, that library now, on Matthew's compound in the heart of Addis, there's 1,800 students registered. We opened the second library now, there's 1,000 students. And out of that, we um, realized that this is something we could do. So we got a major grant from the Irish government before their economy crashed, and built a huge training center on the Sudanese border. And that's, that's one of the, the, the eight buildings there. It's a huge library resource center with computers as well. Um, there are sports, um, all weather sports pitches. Um, we're running out, probably running out of there. Um, the, the library literacy, health education, and agricultural education. And preparatory uh, building as well at the moment. Ethiopia is a country where every year six and a half million people are food insecure. That means that for most of the year, 10 months, they can manage one meal, but for the last two months, they don't have anything. Six and a half million. The government and non-government organizations cope with that every year through their mutual safety net. But for the last three years, it's been appreciably worse. Three years ago, 14 million people were hungry. We tried to get involved. The government told us very clearly, you do not get involved. This is our problem. There are people. If you do try and help, we'll make sure that when you come back to have your work permit renewed or your license renewed, they won't be. Stay out. Two years ago, 16 million people were hungry, and they were so desperate they invited us to help. Last year, this last year, 18 million people. 
That's in the east and the north of Ethiopia. So when the Somali famine began to kick off, nobody had seen it coming because they were focused on the east and north of Ethiopia. And when you consider that the major port of Djibouti, which was where they brought food in for the people on the Somali, Kenyan and Ethiopian border, is 10 days drive by truck from the port to where the food was needed. Their line of supply was completely overextended from this military operation, as it were, it was hopeless. So, massive problems. People living on the streets, people being displaced for all sorts of reasons, mostly banned by the government. So there we are, we did some emergency food relief um, two years ago, I'm not sure what happened last year, but this was food that was being distributed yeah, to, to a group of ANWAC, Masculous people, right under the noses of a, uh, an Indian agribusiness that's been, that's been leased masses, I mean, six lakh hectares of land by the government to grow food, not for Ethiopia, but for India, and the Saudis are doing the same thing. Um, and the, the people were starving, they did nothing about helping, extraordinary. Um, mission challenges, I believe that God shapes us through our challenges. I think we're okay for time, aren't we, John? It's, it's entirely up to you. Brilliant. I'm not going to zap too quickly because some of these things are really important. I really want to spend a little time on this, particularly this one here. I do believe that God shapes us by our challenges. Often, it's very easy, isn't it? We, we do like to complain about our lot. And uh, the clergy are no better or worse than that than any of us. And we do hear clergy complaining about their parishes and about, oh, that's awkward PCC and all this stuff. But I do believe that God shapes us by our challenges and he puts us where we are, nobody else but us, to face and to cope with those challenges. And one of the major challenges that we had um, in Ethiopia was the whole, this is mission speak, the whole issue of inculturation and acculturation. Inculturation is what happens, what you have to do to make the gospel accessible to people who have never heard it before. We're in that kind of situation in this country now. We're in a post-Christian society. You can no longer assume that people actually out there know any of the biblical stories. So how do you actually begin to tell the Christian story to people who have not heard it before here? It's the same issue there. How do you enculturate the gospel? Acculturation is what happens when the gospel <coughs> falls under the shadow of the cross. Not the gospel, sorry, your culture falls under the shadow of the cross. When the gospel casts its shadow over the culture. We all assume that our culture is the best culture there is. People will assume that all, all over the world. And we assume here that our, our culture is a Christian culture. Well, maybe not so. And what happens when we allow the gospel to overshadow the culture that we live in? Let me just throw some light on that by taking you rapidly around the slides here. Top left <coughs> is a witch doctor. Newer, cattle, cattle people, tall, fierce, fierce warriors. They believe, like the Dinka and the Maasai do, that all the cattle in the world belongs to them. And this man here had been a soldier in the war in South Sudan in yesterday, had his leg blown off. So he'd come back and he'd taken over his father's witch doctoring business. Witch doctors don't exist to cast spells. Witch doctors exist to control spells. So if you're sick, the likelihood is, and you're an Ethiopian, the likelihood is that you think that someone's put, put, put a curse on you. 
So what you do is you go and talk to the witch doctor and you pay him some money and actually do something to remove the curse so you can get better again. It was John V. Taylor, Bishop of Winchester, CMS missionary in, uh, in Africa for years, who so in 1960, was it eight or four, I'm not sure, wrote a book called The Primal Vision, where he describes how the people he was working with in those days in the churches in the 1960s in Africa would be in church on a Sunday, but in the middle of the week or after dark would go and see the witch doctor if they were sick. The same kind of thing was happening amongst our churches. I, I said something rather shocking to you earlier, and I just said that my, my friend's biggest challenge in his church in Cambridge was that functionally people between Monday and Saturday were living as atheists. It's the same thing, isn't it? You go to church on Sunday, but you don't quite follow it through with the rest of the week. Really interesting. I'll just leave you with that thought. The, the young man in the centre is a newer warrior, identified by those, those five or six marks on his forehead called a gar. Um, when a young, newer man is, young man's about to become a full man at the age of about 13 or 14, they go off in their kinship group into the forest for a month. They come back and they lie out in a line straight. And the elder of the tribe comes out with a rather old knife and cuts through scores deep down into the bone. They found skulls with these, the, the, the scoring still clearly visible. And they rub at him and they put a bandage around and, and after about a month we take it off and these raised ridges appear. And that's when they recognise each other as, as, as newer warriors. But we began to talk about this and to say, isn't that interesting, that, that initiation idea? Could we perhaps take something of that and use it as you prepare for baptismal confirmation? Could you not go off into the forest for a month with your priest, come back, we won't harm you physically, but to go off on retreat in the forest for a month and then come back to be confirmed straight away? And we're beginning to engage with that and thinking about that, just as we left. Bottom left is, again, a newer tradition, capital tradition. When you visit as a, as a white man, even if you're only five foot seven as I am, um, the sea was a big man, it's rather nice. And um, the first thing you do is to kill a, kill a bull. And you're expected to step over the, the dead bull, blood and viscera and everything else. And then they pick you up and put you on their shoulders and carry you around the compound, which is really alarming. But for years, I was doing that, and Bishop Muneer, coming down from Cairo, would have the same thing done to him. But two years ago, in a week-long meeting uh, with the clergy, they said to me, Bishop Andrew, why are you doing this? This is a pagan custom. Can you see what's happened? They've begun to see where the cross or the gospel cast a shadow over their own culture, acculturation. And just the last one is really interesting. Many baptisms in a river, but the newer particularly, cattle people, well, my friend Gordon, who's about this tall, he's about 45, he's got six kids, and he can, he can recite to you the names of his fathers and grandfathers going back 30 generations. And he's teaching his children the names of the same family ancestors. Ancestors are really, really important. That's about 750 years, I think, isn't it? Something like that. And they're first-generation Christians. And the thing that really, really bothers them is they've got such joy from their faith. They say, but my father never heard the gospel. My grandfather was not a Christian. And it really, really worried them. But two years ago, 
a Lutheran pastor from Addis Ababa, turned up and started to baptize the dead. And he came to me, and they came to me and said, Bishop, this is a fantastic idea. Does this solve all our problems? Well, of course, we then had about two days of discussion about what baptism, and they knew about baptism, but just, you know, we, you can't do that. You have to be alive to be able to give your responses to the questions before you can be baptized. But how else, as Christians, would you cope with working with a people group for whom ancestors are really important? Back to what you might think about that. Mission Challenge Resources. This is the collection from Christmas Day for a whole mission centre, not this Christmas, the Christmas before that, in a very remote area, about 10 hours drive out from Gambella, which is two days drive um, from Addis Ababa. Resources were a huge challenge, a huge issue. That's, these people have given sacrificially, there are notes in here, um, there's a couple of 100 burr notes, which is about five pounds. That's a lot of money to somebody who'd given that. These people give sacrificially, but it was never enough to resource the church. So I had to learn to be a beggar, <laughs> going around with a begging bowl to parishes and contacts all over the world asking for money to resource our work. Spirit, um, you know, materially very poor, spiritually very rich people. Third challenge is covering massive distances. And if you just look at that, I was covering the Horn of Africa. So here's Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, the geographical heart of the country, um, Eritrea, which was part of Ethiopia until the, the war, um, Djibouti, old French Somaliland, um, S Somaliland, which is the British Somaliland, Somalia. So that was all my area. Um, the, the, where the churches are in this little circle down here on the Sudanese border. So a, a massive area. I never got into Eritrea. I got into Djibouti many times, and I got into Hargeisa um, several times, where there are only 65 Christians in the whole country, seven Anglicans. I know that because I baptized them, and I had to baptize them by night, about 10 o'clock at night, and as we met, they had to come in the back door, and they had to whisper their songs because they were terrified that if, they, if their neighbours found out, they'd kill them. So huge pressures that we just don't have to deal with. But huge distances. My nearest, my nearest Anglican um, church, uh, priest colleague, when I arrived, was down here. That's 300 miles. My nearest <coughs> bishop was one and a half thousand miles away which is fantastic. <laughs> but that meant that having come from a culture here where I belonged to a cell group and I had support of other clergy, I had nothing. And I learned, I learned the importance and the delight of working closely with lay people and sharing faith at a very, from this kind of level with lay people. And I've been hugely encouraged by that and, and supported and strengthened through that. Fourth mission challenge there, political context. As I said, it's a land that's never been colonized. There is huge need, as I think I spelled out to you. Um, there's an urgent drive to develop at the moment of government. Um, this, this single party state government, very sharp people heading up this government. Very little corruption in this country. But working with the Chinese, because they, like many people in Africa, 
are sick of looking to the West for models of governance or democracy. They're looking to China and India, and the Chinese just built, have just built, literally over the last few months, cost of $240 million, the new African Union building, because they want a stake in Africa. They're already there building roads and cement factories and everything else. So you know, things are changing. Things are shifting globally. So this urgent drive to develop a huge, long history of dependence on international aid, which they hate, but need. So there's tremendous suspicion of the development sector. Many people in Addis and in the countryside seeing big white land cruisers flashing past often ask how much of the money that's being spent on that should have been spent on us. Um, Graham Hancock wrote a book um, 15, 20 years ago um, called Lords of Poverty, pointing his finger at the development sector. I don't know what you think about that. But suspicion and, and, and fear got to such a pitch that in 2008 the government passed a new civil society law limiting what churches and non-government organisations could do and making it pretty difficult to operate unless there are 16 million people who are hungry and suddenly you need them. Regional politics is about tribalism. Um, we were working with three tribes. Two of them, main tribes, Anuak and Nua, often in conflict. Nua pastoralists, Anuak agriculturalists, often in conflict over access to pasture land and water. But the Nua have very many big clans and they were often in conflict with each other. And that conflict found its way in, into the life of the church. And we, we, had, we, had, we had clergy threatening to kill each other. We had, um, at one stage when, um, I, I wouldn't do what people wanted, but they wanted to kill me. When that didn't work, um, they, they had me arrested and charged by national security with um, smuggling guns across the border from South Sudan into Ethiopia. Um, that kind of thing, it's a ridiculous charge. Everyone knows it's a ridiculous charge. If you get angry, they just think it's hilarious. So you have to submit to yourself to the process, and it might take two or three days out of a visit that was only six or seven days long. And it's hugely frustrating. But it, it was part of the context that we were dealing with. And then land use, as I said, the government is, is virtually giving away leasing land to big agribusinesses and displacing thousands of people in the process. And of course, essentially creating yet more flashpoints in the future. So, principal lessons learnt. I've tried to summarise these and just, just for you this afternoon. Um, I want to call this Western hubris, Western pride. I think we have a, a fair amount of cultural pride. Um, we, we have a fine culture that we've exported around the world. American culture is being exported all over the place. Wasn't it George Bush Sr. in something like the mid-70s said, we've whipped the world with our culture. Um, not something so proud of perhaps Mr. Bush. <coughs> But um, th there is, there's been some real sort of cultural dominance. We live in a globalised world, you know, we're exporting all of that. What we don't like is when people in the two-thirds world start to answer back. Theological hubris, you know, we think that our way of doing things is best. Actually, there are Christians out there approaching things very differently and have a vibrant faith that we can learn much from. 
One of the lessons I've learned is just the, the importance of trusting God radically. When you're in a situation, as I've just described to you, with political interference and things, and it's difficult to find your way forward, all you can do is cling to the cross and rely on God completely, depend upon God completely, because there's nothing else you can do. I would just suggest that perhaps we don't rely on God enough. Giving sacrificially, giving giving here is quite a struggle, isn't it? But you saw the work that the people in that mission centre gave on Christmas Day, really sacrificially. What would it take for us to give sacrificially? What would, it, what would happen if we did do that? Discipleship for real life. Well, what are the issues that we should be helping people to cope with? At work, at home. Um, I went, women are very good at sharing their lives and sharing their struggles and concerns. Men are here, I think, are quite bad at it. But I went to a men's breakfast um, shortly after arriving, actually, in Faction. And uh, I was really bowled away because they were actually talking about the real things that bother them, whether it's a debt or threat of redundancy. Uh, but what, what would it take, to think, for men to start talking about the things like what happens when my eye starts to wander? I'm attracted to somebody walking down the street and all those sorts of things. How can we disciple people for real life rather than just doing churchy things and talking churchy talk? The whole people of God, well, um, you know, not just working with clergy, but actually loving the fact that we are a church of clergy and lay together, and just wanting to hear and to work with lay people. Structuring for mission, just so important. Um, Bishop John wants us all to go through a mission action planning exercise from, from the grassroots up throughout the diocese at the moment. I think that's really exciting. Um, if it's, if, as long as we see it as an opportunity, to restructure um, our, our parishes, our deaneries for mission. And one of the most important things I think we can learn is that our buildings must serve our mission. Our buildings must never be our mission. But coming to the end, <laughs> I'm proud. I'm proud to have a newer cattle name. About four years ago, the newer gave me a, a, a cattle name. Um, as a man, you're given the cattle name when you come of age. And young men are always named after their favorite cow. <laughs> I was given a cow with a particular um, coloring patterning. And um, my name is Nyaldien, which means white with a patch of red. <laughs> it's really conscious to you. I'll always be proud to have that name. I believe our calling, our calling together, is to bear fruit and to bear fruit that will last. You can only bear fruit if you're being serious about your discipleship. How can we bear fruit? How can you bear fruit in Finch House in California and beyond? All our life, all our hope, all our meaning flows from the risen Christ. That's another gospel icon, Ethiopian Orthodox. Can you see which gospel story it's telling? Woman with the issue of blood, exactly, exactly. All our hope, our life and our meaning flows from Christ. Just as salvation and healing flowed from him for her that day. And my last slide is a prayer at the end of the Eucharist from the Ethiopian, one of the Ethiopian Orthodox Eucharistic prayers, Anaphora, the Anaphora of St. Gregory of Nyssa. And I just thought that if you could read, can you see it? that we might just pray it together and then we can go into questions.
in Ethiopia, side by side, not just in the same village, but sometimes even the same family. And they go to each other's festivals. But what's disturbing people is that they are seeing the, the appearance for the first time ever of a radicalized form of Islam coming, from, uh, coming up from Somalia. But it's being, well, I'll say, say this, it's, been, it's, it's coming with Indonesian Muslim missionaries and backed by Saudi money. And then you've got American money backing Protestant missions coming in too. So it's like it's sort of a new scramble for Africa, really, and uh, you know the, the people get a bit fed up with it, to be honest. Good question. Another, yes, please. Uh, Bishop, I was very interested in your comments about the Orthodox Church and the fact that it goes back to King Solomon's times. Uh, I was thinking, of course, of Philip and the Exactly. Ethiopia. Yes. I, 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 I'm saying, coming up to today, you were saying that uh, they have a Bible uh, which has 13 more books than yes. R66. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was wondering whether uh, there is a, a Christian faith dormant there that we could, in some ways, relate to and build upon. Is I think that there's a very strong Christian faith there. I think that. When we hear that there are 13 extra books in the Bible, when people see that there is the, the, the classics of Orthodox devotion to Mary, which is actually about the Incarnation, more than it's about Mary, when people see elaborate liturgy, they assume um, a lack of Christian faith. But in fact, that the Christian faith is vibrant and really strong amongst some people, not all people. And I think what um, friends of mine who've been there long term as missionaries with BCMS and CMS working in the seminaries and things, helping to teach these this new generation of priests coming up, they're actually saying, remarkably, they're actually saying that if you were to enculturate a church for Ethiopia, you'd probably invent the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And so if, if they could actually try and really make sure that the people who are being educated as clergy have a solid biblical foundation and able to preach in powerful ways, that's got to help long term. And if that, if, if that happened, then they just think that things could, could be turned around in that country. Does that answer the question? Yes. Uh, okay. What were the 13 extra books? One of the 13 extra books, I actually don't know. One of them is the Acts of Mary. One of the Acts is the Acts of the Prophet Elijah, I think. But there are all sorts of books that really we just don't come across, not even in the Apocrypha. Um, so they're very different sorts of books. I don't read, I don't read Amharic or Ge'ez, which is the old church Ethiopic, which not many Ethiopians can read either. It's a very specialised area. And when I went out, I wanted to learn the language, but the USPG, the mission that sent us, said you got, you're only there for three years. And we can't afford for you to take a year and a half out to learn in Harrick. So <laughs> the result is that I didn't. So I'm great on the street with that, Harrick. I could you know, take you into a bar and order you a beer and some food. Um, but but well, that's all right. little else, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And another question, please. Nothing too daft to ask, nothing too difficult to ask. <laughs> Bishop, it's very exciting what you've done out there and the, the foundations you've laid, but I've been interested to know what's happening since you've left. Yeah. Who is the new bishop? Is the Anglican Church got a, a vision for handing over, you know, 
management yes. and all the rest. And how yes. how's it going on since you've left? Yes, thank you. Since we've left, it's been, to be honest, been really difficult. Um, the idea is that they that there will be an indigenous bishop at some stage. It's a very young church, young clergy. Um, there are a couple of clergy at the moment, one in Addis, one in Cairo, um, learning theologically formally through a university. Um, one of them will actually be the first indigenous bishop, I'm pretty sure. But it's too soon at the moment. So what they've done is to, is to go for another foreign bishop. It took them a long time, a long time. I actually appointed somebody to be in Gambel to look after the Anglican Centre, and Bishop Munir made to me area dean, and he's been looking after the clergy and making sure the Irish Aid Project comes through to its end. Um, but only, he's left now. Somebody else has had to come, and the new bishop who has been appointed is a professor of New Testament and Mission at a seminary, a seminary in Pittsburgh, in the States. And he, but he can't, he's not being consecrated until St. Mark's Day in Alexandria this year, and he won't come until September. So that's, that's, that's 18 months. Um, and the result, of course, is you know, people have sort of wandered off with the cattle, or there's been you know, infighting. Um, and one of the most painful things, I'll just be very honest with you, it's this classic thing, you don't just get in the church, but elsewhere too, that somebody following on wants to advance themselves by destroying what's gone before. So the person who followed actually had set about fairly systematically um, dismantling some of the things that we'd set up in the hope that it would see them through to the next bishop. So that's been very difficult. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm so grateful that there's somebody actually appointed. And I know the guy who's coming, he's a Canadian, he's absolutely fantastic. And he's been there twice already. He spent a week teaching them an overview of African Christianity. So, you know, they'll be so excited to have him. But it's God's church, not mine. And actually, you know, nothing's ever lost. So, you know, I'm sure that the Lord is quite capable of doing whatever he needs to with that situation. Thanks, Brett. Another hand go up somewhere. Um, could, I, could I ask one? Yeah, please. please. Um, <laughs> the, you mentioned that you were arrested on yes. trumped-up charges. Yes. Um, I just wondered what, whether you'd learnt anything about the overall politics of the country, because it's a hostile environment. I mean, the, um, the opposition are all locked up, aren't they? Yeah. And the elections are arguably not yes. fair. Yes. And, and I just wondered whether... Because that, from our perspective, from a Western perspective, is, is kind of one of the worst things imaginable, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and yet this society is still operating, the church is operating within it. And I wondered if you had any reflections on our perception of, you know, what, what's, what's right for another country, particularly in that context. That's a really good question. That's a very good question. I'd like to come think in several ways, if I may. Um, very conscious that what we've done for nine years was every time the law changed, having to adjust to that reality. And it is a stark reality. And in that context, the first thing you do is talk to other organizations and churches who are facing the same issues. And there's always somebody who's either thought a way around or a way around it or a way of dealing with it. So it does not necessarily mean the end of your work. It actually meant that much of the time, John, it felt as if we were building with sand. So, like sand castles on the beach, just get washed away by the next wave of time, uh, wave that comes in. 
um, so listening to other people, but actually having to do that dutiful thing and actually going into a government office and talking to people and saying, well, we don't like it, but we understand we will follow the rules that you changed because um, we know that if we don't, we're going to be kicked out. And they know that you know that if you don't follow the rules, you won't be able to continue with the work. Um, so difficult, is, is it not, in a country of such huge need? You know, should you not have anybody there helping? I don't think you can do that. I wouldn't want to turn my back on the huge need that's there, despite the fact that the political context is so complicated and so dangerous often. But you're right, the op opposition people um, put in prison um, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty desperate, really. The, the last election was a stolen election. Um, who knows? Thank you. D really difficult, really yeah. difficult to answer. But so, you know, to what extent do you compromise yourself by going along with, with, with the way things are? And that's perhaps, that's perhaps a really important question. I hope we never actually have to face it here. But you never know, do you? You never know. How is it that three years turned into nine years? Three years? You, I think basically because you get interested in something and you become committed and you see that a job of work needs doing and you know, through, through those things a sense of call, a strong sense of call emerges and when people begin to respond to your requests for you know, financial help and things, then it begins to feel as if God's actually resourcing that call. And so you stay. Um, and so three years did become nine years very quickly. Um, but it was right to come back, absolutely right to come back. It's the right time for all sorts of reasons. I suppose it could have, the, the church here could have brought you back after three years. It could have done. permission for you to stay back. It, they, exactly, they gave permission for me to stay on, they did, yes. I'm glad they did. Did you have a, uh, or a very good, sorry, did you have a very good working relationship with the other Christian communities? Yes, thank you, I did. Um, and, and how did you sort of get over some of the problems with, with working together? Yes. Well, that's a good question. Um, I was a good working relationship with the Orthodox Church. I was Ryan Williams as a Pakistanis, which means his ambassador, if you like, the Patriarchate, and would take greetings and things and go and, and go and take people to go and visit him. Um, things became more difficult after 2003, um, when um, Gene Robinson was consecrated in the States, and then they, they were very polite always, but kept us at arm's length. And around that time, the Anglican Oriental Orthodox dialogue broke down globally. Um, so that was a, a, a difficult time. That just meant that we re then we focused elsewhere. In the Gambella, I was working pretty closely and very much inspired by the Roman Catholics. Um, they were Salesians, um, Don Bosco, who whose whole purpose is to work with the the poor and the privileged. And they started doing this in the 19th century in slums in Italy, but now doing it all over Africa. And they were building you know, huge, huge programs with sort of not education, what it was actually, it was, it was um, vocational training basically, and agriculture that they were doing. And the bishop there was amazing, you always see him in a, ne never in his robes and things, always in a t-shirt and jeans with a kangaroo hammer in his hand, you know, knocking somebody down, something, not somebody, something, <laughs> or, 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 or preparing to build something. 
Um, the, the other Protestant churches, yes, I mean, we did have good relations with them. We tried to get an ecumenical process going um, out of a big conference that was held and, and resourced and financed by the Roman Catholics, but nothing happened. And I just think it's because there had not been any history of real in-depth cooperation and collaboration in a systemic way in Ethiopia at all before. Um, and so personal relationship worked, but trying to formalize anything it didn't seem to get anywhere. Is that something that could happen from this end? No, I think it's good to impose I it. I meant from the point of view of the churches here know they have their own representative. In fact, the situation in the country. Well, that, that does tend to happen. I mean, I was there, you have, you know, um, the, the, the Pope has his nuncio there. You've got uh, the, the heads of the, the missions tend to be um, there as well, tend to be foreigners. So they, they're, they are talking to each other, but it's just it's just hard getting much traction at the grassroots, really. Just as it was always very difficult to get relations with the, the Muslim community. Yes, please. I just wondered whether you'd see the um, working with, working through the um, political difficulties, cultural difficulties, bureaucratic difficulties that you've kind of talked to people have asked questions about, whether all that is part of the inculturation that is hopefully leads to acculturation, similar to working in the 45 degrees and the 80% degree humidity. It's all part of embracing that culture in, a, in, a, in an effort to achieve something, a vision. That's a really interesting insight. Thank you, actually. I have never thought of that. I think that's, that's really wise and insightful. Yeah, so that's part of um, enculturating yourself there, really, being, being thoroughly part of Yes, sharing the life of the people. Um, that's the thing. You couldn't actually be sort of parachuted in. You might be, with, you know, with white skin, everyone saw you as being wealthy. We had a pretty simple lifestyle. And there were people there working for non-government organisations, living in massive places, you know, behind walls and things, and go, making forays out to the shops in their big four-by-fours and not really being part of um, you know, life in Ethiopia. But it was, I think it was really important for us to feel as if we were sharing the life of the people as far as we could. Um, and it's, it's, it can never be a complete sharing because you can never share the, 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 the problems that they're facing. I mean, when you think that mortality rate, average life expectancy for a woman is about 45, for a man is 47, um, you know, children dying of diarrheal diseases and malaria and stuff. You know, we, we were never exposed to the, the harshness of those realities, really. But you're right, sharing the life of people to the extent that you can. And part of that is actually um, being submit, subjected to the political machinations of the government and the regional government particularly. I mean, they made us jump through hoops. And I'm sure that for some of the time, actually, it was a huge joke just seeing what you might be prepared to do and not do. Um, yeah. One of the issues we had was the issue about what you should roof your buildings with, that big Irish aid project. We had this architect design scheme to put corrugated iron that had lovely, beautifully crafted thatch on top of the, of the corrugated iron because it uh, keeps, the, keeps the roof cooler and the water sort of runs off in the, in the wet season and things. And the regional president had given the land, so we could not do that. 
So we had to completely re redesign those buildings to fit in with the whim of his. So those sorts of things were quite common. Really. Does that answer your question? Thank you. mention about the um, Chinese presence, uh, which is in a lot of Africa, does it benefit the local population at all? Yeah, and in terms of the roads, road system, there was nothing. And when you think that 50% of the population of Ethiopia live more than a whole day's walk from the tarmac road, um, you know, they're putting a huge network in, so that's helping hugely. Cement factories also helping hugely because um, about a year ago, we were on holiday in Tanzania, where the, the price of a sack of cement was seven American dollars. In Ethiopia, it was 28 American dollars because they were importing it, which meant that anything that you were building was hugely expensive, which meant, of course, that we had grants that we had from the Irish government to 600,000 euros over three years. Most of that was going in buildings, not on programs. But if you had cement that cheap, you could spend far more money on programs. So it, it is benefiting. You're getting tired. <laughs> Has the internet made any impact? Has the internet made any impact on the country? It, it's beginning to, and it's going to be, make a huge difference. I mean, people talk about a digital divide between you know, the West and the developing world, and people being left behind because they don't have access to the internet access that we do. Um, but Melissa be the Prime Minister, Prime Minister of Ethiopia, is actually at a moment of, I think, real inspiration three years ago was laying hundreds of miles of fibre optic cables with the, with, the, with the sole purpose of getting every village online um, within the next 10 years. Well, that's pretty smart. <laughs> Julie. <laughs> that caused the excitement. <laughs> Whether your time in Africa and then coming back here has left you more or less encouraged about the state of the Church of England here and about mission here and how, how prepared the church is for mission here now? Yes, really good question. Um, I think actually really interesting, Julie, because on several occasions I've sat in meetings with African bishops and listening to the, the rhetoric that comes out of some places, certainly Nigeria, also Uganda, which is the church, they would say things like, why are we aping the Church of England? The Church of England is dying. It has no heart, no soul, no faith. Why are we following it? And so when you hear that constantly, you know, you come back thinking, well, what on earth am I going to find? And look at this this evening. Here we are for, you know, a, a, a Lent lecture, for goodness sake. I don't know how many people are here, but what? 60, 70, 80. Fantastic. I'm going, many places I'm going, you know, full churches. Uh, of course, whenever the bishop goes, it's a special occasion. <laughs> but I'm really encouraged about what I'm seeing. I do think that in terms of mission, I think our task is huge because we're up against it. I think we're worried about having to look after ancient buildings. We're worried about you know, Richard Dawkins and um, you know, aggressive atheism and things. Um, we really are up against it, and I think that our, the temptation is to withdraw to, to a position of refuge, to seek refuge from the, the storm of the world's problems, really. 
And I think that our major challenge is to see how we can move from refuge to mission. And I do think the key to that actually is discipleship. Um, it's about discipling people for whole life, real life, um, because it's out of that that mission comes. So if you start with that basic principle, then, you know, so we're doing the right things, we've got these discipleship days coming up. And I think that's absolutely right and really exciting. Thank you. Probably got time for one more. Well, the time seems to have been perfect then. If we're thank, you. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, just, be, just before I thank you, can I give a couple of notices? Oh, please do. Uh, next week, um, I hesitate. <laughs> <laughs> we heard something about the state and the church in Ethiopia. Well, next week is all about the state and the church of England. I had thought of entitling the lecture Having Fun with the Book of Common Prayer, but, but even I haven't quite got the effrontery to do that. But if you choose to come, the title is um, The Book of Common Prayer and the State of England, Dearly Beloved, covers them both, and um, we'll be covering all sorts of interesting things. I think I can guarantee that if you come, you will learn something that you didn't know before, and you may be surprised by how um, interesting. It is. Having said that, you don't have to come, and you're welcome to come to any of the other lectures uh, in the following weeks. But it seemed worth noting the fact that this is the 350th anniversary of the Book of Common Prayer, 1662 version, yes. which we use each week um, at St. James, and also the 60th uh, anniversary of the Queen's accession. So, so out of all of that, there's a lot of there's a lot of entertainment to be had, really. <laughs> For those of you who are members of St. Mary St. John's and St. James, uh, if you didn't get one of these uh, leaflets on Sunday, would you please pick up one as you go out? It's asking you to make your own contributions to the vision process that we're about to embark on. And it's a good idea to take it today because I've asked for your comments back by this coming Sunday. Uh, and we would like as many comments as possible. Can I just give one yeah. other announcement? Thank you. Which is that um, last week I set up a, a Facebook page called Berkshire Archdeaconry. And if you're interested, I'm doing a series of daily posts, um, taking the gospel reading for each day, and just in about that much type script, um, making some connections with poverty issues in Ethiopia I've been talking about. On, on the basis that it's often easier to see issues at a distance, more clearly at a distance, but to try to encourage us to engage with the poor, the underprivileged here, really, in Berkshire. So if, you, if you've got a computer and you get on the internet, um, Berkshire Archdeacon on Facebook page, if you can't find it, just go to the Oxford Diocese uh, website and you'll see on the left it says Bishop Logs during Lent and just click on that little ticket there. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming all this way and well, bringing course, all these it. African memories, all these reflections, um, all these ideas. Um, and we're really grateful to you for coming and sharing all that with us, leaving us with lots of, lots of food for thought. So um, I think we should give you another round of applause and then ask you if you would just yes. send us out with Good a prayer. So thank you very much.
present, O merciful Lord, and protect us from the silent hours of this night. That we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this fleeting world may repose upon thy eternal changelessness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your heart and mind in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Good night and thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.